Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So if leadership is about preparing for the future, then it must be the case that learning about what's ahead in the future and being agile enough to adapt to changing times has to be central to success. But then that begs the question, so how is central is this lifelong learning thing to effective leadership and what makes leaders ready for a lifelong journey? And how do we get leaders ready for the next step at any rate? And we're also going to talk a little bit about how the leaders provide meaning. So my guest today is, I think, uniquely qualified to speak on this topic. Steve Newman has been a teacher, trainer, program director for executive development and an advisor on learning in companies. He was the co-founder of the Future of Learning Forum at Columbia Business School and the originator of Magnet for Global Innovation Program in Silicon Valley. He worked in London to develop young audiences in what is today called Rambert Dance, and he taught drama at Teachers College in Norway. That's quite an interesting range. More importantly for us, Steve has spent 15 years running executive ed programs at Ericsson, which is the global telecommunication giant. And um, he's got an interesting history in the past, including U.S. Peace Corps volunteering and training in, in Uganda and managed learning initiatives on every continent. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. Quite Wow, that's quite a background. Between uh, I, I Silicon Valley, <laughs> Columbia, Ericsson, Uganda, dance studio. My goodness, I think you've explored learning in just about every aspect there is to explore it. Well, what it all amounts to is spending a lot of time sitting in classrooms, and, and that's what I love. Okay. Well, great. So let's talk about this one. I said at the very beginning that leadership is about preparing the future and for the future. And I know that's what you think, but why? Why do you think that's so important? I, I think it's important because leaders have a lot to do. They are, they are very stressed. Um, everybody is working harder and harder. So I, I, I've asked myself and I've asked leaders as well, well, you know, what's the difference between the leaders and everybody else? I mean, all all organizations are going through change programs and transformation programs and working on strategies. What, what is particular about leaders? And what I hear is, well, we try to look further ahead. Uh, we try to take more responsibility for the firm or the organization as a whole. And in addition to that, um, I was able to interview two CEOs after they retired, and I asked them, uh, you know, what is it that you wish you spent more time doing? And both of them said to me, I wish I spent more time thinking about the future, preparing for the future. So I thought, okay, that sounds good. Let me test this with leaders, the leaders on my, my program. And it resonated with them. They said, oh, yeah, that's what we try to do. That's what we should try to do. And then I've been able to use that kind of as the foundation for, for what I do in executive development. Interesting idea. I mean, it rings true for me that when I talk with leaders, they're thinking about what's ahead, what's my strategy. I always hesitate to use the word vision because we kind of make that into something bigger than I think it is. 
But a sense of direction of where we're going and what I need the team to be focused on, actually really delivering on, and that is getting us prepared for the future. But it strikes me that most people say that's what they need to do and they don't do a terribly good job of it. So why do you think that is? Why do we talk that way and then don't deliver? I think there's an incredible tension at every level in the organization, including at the top, between the urgent and and the important. I, I think most leaders would agree they should spend more time thinking about the future. They should frame things in terms of preparing for the future. But they are stressed. They, 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 they don't really have the time. So, you know, I've been thinking kind of what is the shortcut? You know, how do you begin? Uh, because yeah. it, it is a massive task. And one day uh, they regret that they didn't take the time. But that's way in the future when they have the time to think about these things. Yeah, yeah. That resonates, too, with me and my experiences is that they – know they need to, but the dealing with the urgent is so crisis-oriented. And sometimes I think the future is such a big thing, we kind of don't even know where to begin with it. So let me pick up with your question. How do you begin and how do you help people prepare for what's ahead? Well, I think you begin uh, with the fact that the, the, the future is not linear. I mean, it's not like you can sit here today and actually predict what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. And, and I don't think you really need to do that. So that, that takes a little bit of pressure off of leaders. Um, I think what the job is is to look around and try to sense, you know, what in the future is already here today. And that, that's quite different from extrapolating from where we are into where we're going. Very often the strategy will do that. And all companies have strategies, and they're monitoring how they're doing on the strategy. And at the end of the day, the strategy will show number of new clients and uh, increased gross margins and better return on assets and all of that. That that Those are areas that the leaders are managing, and then they'll make a new strategy and so on and so forth. The, the future that I am talking about is the one where you are open to all of the weak changes around you that can tell you where things are going, where you have a mindset to be, to, be, to be open and to be curious and to be able to feed that back into the organization to have a, com- a continually updated picture of what the future might look like. So can you give me an example of a weak signal? Like the weak changes? Here's an example, and I don't know what the weak signal was exactly, but I can tell you what I think it, what it should have been. If you, if you go back to 2004, and you looked at commercial real estate, and you can imagine in that industry what sort of metrics people were looking at, um, price per square foot, access to transport, uh, you know, uh, big city, suburb, tensions, you know, which way was it going, technology inside of buildings, prices, obviously. Um, 2004, that's 15 years ago. How many people saw that, at that in that very year, an industry began that today is a $26 billion industry 20,000 spaces in the world, growing at 10, 10% per year, and actually targeting 40% of the American working population. I'm, I'm talking about co-working. Um, and I don't know what the weak signals 
really were that the, you know, the co-working pioneers were looking at. But if you ask people, are you happy in these uh, office buildings that commercial real estate was building? Uh, would you rather be, uh, you know, working inside your company or working in your community uh, by function? Um, do you want to take the elevator up to the 22nd floor with all the security and sit there with everybody else? Or would you like to be in a much more convivial environment? The, the answer might have been, let, let, you know, let's do something that looks like co-working. And then co-working began. So I think, I think it's that, that kind of thing that if people are attuned to what's going on around them, they might get there quicker, they might get there more effectively. So let me ask a question then uh, on this vein, because everybody and his brother is talking about data and about artificial intelligence. No, I I think people, you know, everybody's talking about data and everybody's talking about artificial intelligence. I'm not talking about that. Uh, Maybe I should. I think artificial intelligence is out there for everybody. Digital transformation is coming for everybody and data is coming for everybody. So every organization has to have a view for what that's going to look like in their future. But they need to go beyond that. I mean, if they'll be developing apps, how will people feel using them? Uh, How will that change the behavior of people? Uh, What will be particular about their organization if everybody's using artificial intelligence? So certainly that's part of the future, but I'm thinking more broadly than that. Yeah, I thought so. Because I think that's a trap. When we think about the future, we say, oh, it's all going to be data and it's all going to be AI. And that misses what are even the big trends within both of those and the big challenges and I think the big opportunities. So you're talking, looking much more broadly about the impact on society, about the places where people are happy or unhappy or dream for something different and what that would mean for our implications for what we're currently doing. Is that a fair summary? Yes. I think that's fair, one. Then I can I can give you an example. Um, I brought a group to Guangzhou in China, mm-hmm. high potential next generation leaders, and we had the obligatory uh, preparation for a trip like that. You know, we we looked at mobile phone uh, uptake, uh, data, population growth, demographics, all sorts of things. So the hard data was there. Uh, we had a great lecture on the history of the Communist Party. By the way, the Communist Party of China has no website and no phone number, Wanda. In case you want to join that, you can't, you can't, you can't get a hold of them. So we had all of that, and that was fascinating. And then one day, we went to a leading university in Guangzhou, and we had a workshop with the students. And we, we, our job was to explain through stories kind of where we came from, what our family life was like, uh, how is it that we came to have certain values, and how we saw the future. And it was fascinating. First of all, all of the non-Chinese participants had brothers and sisters. The Chinese, of course, did not. Um, the Chinese talked about their cousins and their grandparents. Nobody else did. Um, the Chinese talked about how important their friends were. That was their circle. And they talked about what they did with their friends, which is spend a lot of time with them camping, being outside, going up on mountains. And it was so powerful to hear them speak as lonely children, so dependent on their friends, so devoted to their friends, and so devoted to a very, very strong sense of the environment that, that we all said to ourselves, wait a minute, we're in, this is where 
the green economy will be created. This is the country that's going to export solutions to the rest of the world. That's what we came away thinking about. Rather than uptake of technology in general and all the things that we usually talk about with regards to China. So that and this is interesting that you didn't go and talk about the industry or business or strategy or growth in mobile phones or in technology. You went and talked about people's lives. We, we, we tried to do that. I mean, we, we felt we could get the rest of the data and, and we had to be prepared, and people were prepared. But when we got there, what, what was interesting to us was how people lived and where they came from and what they did with these phones, and that's another story altogether. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And that has huge implications if you're sitting in the background saying, what is it we do with our mobile phone technology? So, Steve, what's your, how do we begin to, I mean, so you take people to Guangzhou, okay, and you deal with university students. Have you found that there are particularly useful ways in general to get people to start to think about the future and understand it in a different way? I think that there are, but I do think it all begins with curiosity, so there's nothing more powerful than hiring curious people. Um, it certainly starts there. I think people are inherently curious. I have a two-year-old grandson. I see that every day. Um, once you have the curiosity and then you have the leadership, then you have the, you know, the leaders modeling the asking of questions, the curiosity, the humility to, you know, not have all the answers, but to be looking for the answers, that, then, I, then I actually think you're on, you're on your way. Um, I think when it comes to learning activities, there are some ways you can make it a little bit quicker and a little bit more powerful for people. I would say you should always split skill building and the development of perspectives. And the kinds of things that I'm talking about are kind of in the domain of perspectives. So spend your time on that. Uh, spend your time exposing people from, to what's out there. And then try to conduct uh, workshops, build practices where people can take this kind of input and do something with it. Um, let, let me give you another story, if I can. Yeah, please. The, 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 okay. The, this is about counterterrorism in London. Okay. So I had uh, another group, that same program, uh, Global Perspectives for Next Generation Leaders, and I brought them to London. And we tried to use London as the, the one place in the world where you could see the whole world. You know, I'm in London right now, and it's all right here, as, as you know. And one of the subjects that we were looking at back in, say, about 2010 with counterterrorism. There had been terrorist attacks in London and Paris and everywhere else. So the question was, you know, what organizations, what are governments doing to counter terrorism, and is that effective? And we had contact with an organization in London. I cannot give the, the address. It's a bit like the yes. Chinese Communist Party. But we went there, and we went up the stairs, and we sat in a conference room with ex-terrorists, mostly from Libya. They were so articulate about the threat of terrorism, about how it's growing all around the world and inside of prisons in Great Britain and France and other European countries. It was a very, very powerful hour of presentation and, and questions. Um, 
And uh, everybody was extremely moved and extremely grateful that they had this opportunity. When we went back to the classroom and we discussed this, to the surprise of everybody who did not come from Egypt or Morocco or Algeria or any of those countries, um, some of the people believed what they heard, and all the people from the Middle East and the North of Africa did not believe a word of it. They said, I don't believe that these people are no longer, pres- uh, no longer terrorists. Prove it to me. And that began a very, very long discussion. And I think that that experience that everybody had together did more to build that group than anything else on the program. So, Mike, just to answer your question, you can get at sharing experiences in a very structured way. You, you have an experience. Maybe that's one-fifth of the time. You, you share with others what you got out of that experience. Maybe that's two-fifths of the time. You listen to everybody else. You ask people, you know, how it is that they thought the way they did. And you try to draw some conclusions. And then you repeat and you repeat and you repeat. And you'll find that people's perspectives are growing over time. Where, though, Steve, do you come up with the ideas of what we need to focus on? Like, who would have thought that you would take a group of business leaders to talk to counter-terrorists and realize that actually that has enormous implications about the future and therefore about our business, ultimately, at the end of the day? Kind of where does that creative spark come from? Well, I, you know, I think, I mean, so many people in business, especially young people today, they are so well educated. I mean, they have MBAs, they have engineering degrees, um, they've been to famous business schools. So they have all of that. So the, the question is, you know, what subjects will be new to them, exciting to them, and what will be a platform for them to discuss things with each other? And I think if you're, if you're thinking about preparing for the future, and you were doing this back in 2010, there is a short list of topics that you would be interested in. Another one was child poverty. I mean, London, this enormously rich city, has enormous amounts of child poverty, right? And this affects all companies. And so, we, you know, we also had, we had an experience with a company doing that. So I, I don't think it's very hard if you start from the fact preparing for the future what is it about the future that will affect all of us and kind of that that's where i begin i love that what is it about the future that will affect all of us and then i love this notion that you have a bunch of people together peers in ways talking about their experiences sharing their perspective and having different reactions to it Because it's not like there is a singular view. And I think that sort of multitude of perspectives on the single problem is probably as informative as just talking about the problem itself. I I think it's the most powerful part of the executive education model that I work with. It's the perspectives of each other. You know, I, I don't think there is such a thing as a group perspective. If there is, you haven't really dug deep enough. The real learning starts when you learn something about somebody else that you didn't expect to learn. And from there, you find out, you know, why does that person think that way? And if they, did, they do think that way, what are the implications for, the way, for, for, for that person's leadership? And that's been very, very powerful. And I have more stories for you as well. Oh, I want to hear more stories. These sound fascinating. I just had to make this one comment. We talk a lot about inclusivity, and it's a topic I certainly care a great deal about, and collaboration. And the heart and soul of either of those is making sure that I'm listening to people who have a different point of view, that I'm not just listening to people who think the same way I do. 
and that I can, especially in collaboration, that I can entertain an alternative view of the situation that's inconsistent with mine, as a matter of fact. And what you're doing in these, yes, I get it's for preparing for the future, but in many ways, what you're doing is teaching people to understand alternative views and to recognize that the future in particular is not, you said not linear, but it's not just one shade. It's many shades. That's right. That's right. So how do you keep the, I want to hear another story too, but how do you keep these groups listening and not turning into a fight? <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I think at least in, in, the, in executive education, uh, you know, you're dealing with people's valuable time. Um, I think you really have to provide uh, experiences and content that is exciting, uh, that is new, and that will challenge them. I mean, you don't really have the right uh, to take people away from their work for a week or so and, and not do something that is different and, and that is challenging. But I also think people must be prepared. Uh, I think that participants must respect the fact that they got this opportunity. Uh, now you flip the classroom, you send everything out. People must absolutely read those things and come ready to learn. And that, and that is something that I insist on. And the culture of the company that sends people to executive programs must insist on that as well. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Right, right. Well, that certainly changes what I have seen in the last few uh, periods of time, shall I say, in terms of companies' willingness. But I also think it's an important frame, this notion of we're preparing people for the future. And I like that you say that it's our obligation with people's time to give them new experiences and new information, new insight. Okay? So sure. another story. We have another, another story. <laughs> okay, I, I do travel a lot, Wanda, like you do. I'm very lucky that I've had these opportunities. Uh, here's here's a story from Seoul, South Korea. Um, this same group, uh, the year 2000, um, the the CEO of Ericsson had made contacts with the person inside of Samsung consumer electronics, and that at the time was a mere $30 billion company. I think today it's $400 billion. Um, and inside con- consumer electronics was a burgeoning telecom business, and everybody was wondering what Samsung was going to do about telecom. So the CEO said to me, okay, you're going to Korea anyway on this Global Perspectives program. Um, I'd like you to hook up with, with Samsung and just see what's going on. I'm sure they'll give you a terrific welcome. So it's, um, it's a chai bowl, right? Samsung, they have their own right. hotel, their own this, their own that, and everything. You show up, and they invite you to the Samsung Hotel. Don't remember what the name of it was. Fantastic banquet, ice sculpture, right, of the different countries of the world that were represented at the table. Uh, seating arrangements, right? Each of our participants was seated with their counterparts and Samsung, who then used the whole evening to pick their brains right, over lots yeah. of alcohol, find out what they knew um, and how they thought about things. And I, I was put at the table in the back with the older people, probably the useless people, um, and I think we probably had the most fun. We come to the end of the meal and everybody makes a speech and so on. Um, and then I look around the room and I realize that all of the uh, Samsung executives are men, right? It just, it just kind of hit me. And I flashed back to earlier in the day uh, 
when we had a lecture from them in an amphitheater, and one of the members of the group, a woman from Spain, said, excuse me, I'd like to use the ladies' room. And we were on the 32nd floor of Samsung, and somebody said, well, we don't have a ladies' room here. And she said, well, what am I supposed to do? And she said, wait a minute, we can fix this. They go down to the 27th floor, they go to the broom closet, they do something in there, because that's where the clean, that's what the cleaning ladies use, and they tell us to wait a minute, and they fix it up, and they allow her to use the broom closet, and come back out again, back up to the whatever it was, the 31st floor, and the meeting continues. So, that experience, no ladies' room, later on at night, banquet with no women, lots and lots of alcohol. The following day, we had so much to talk about. Here's this very, very modern city, um, saturated with mobile phones and apps and everything, and there's no ladies' room on the executive floor. And, and I can tell you that not that people had a different intellectual take on it, but it, there was so much interest in this culture, and I think people realized it would not stay this way forever, but that's the way it was at the time, and, and in a funny kind of way, people fell in love with Korea, because it was extremely exotic, and there we were. Wow. And again, if you think about developing global executives and giving them a perspective on a different country, it sounds to me like that kind of an experience might even be more powerful than just moving an expat to run an operation and living with other expats and so on. Or at least I can see some benefit out of that one, not just that. Absolutely. And I would hope that the expat has had an experience like that before he or she goes there. Makes them much more effective when they they go in. All right. I just have one quick one. We're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes. But where's inspiration in all this? You, you talked about curiosity and you talked about right. leaders and the culture of the company and you talked about the humility and about asking questions. But is inspiration a part of it or just inspiration? I, 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 I think it is, Wanda, in, in, in two important senses. First of all, I think the whole goal of uh, leadership development or training, if you like, is to inspire people to use what they've learned. It's not just to learn. So any program that you prepare or any intervention that you do, at the end of the day, people must be inspired to use what they learn. Or they won't, they, won't, they won't use it. They'll say thank you and they'll go away. The second element of inspiration is that when you focus very, very closely on a problem, when you're extremely motivated and you're inspired to find the solution, that solution will come. It may not be when you're in the classroom. It may not be immediately, but it's something. A very, very quick story because I know we're going to take a break. Yeah. Um, it's a story that Bill Duggan at Columbia Business School tells Picasso meets Matisse in Paris, 1907. Have you heard this one, Wanda? I haven't. Okay. Matisse is holding an African sculpture. Picasso takes it away from him. He takes it back to where he's staying. He looks at it. He cradles it all night long. And the very next day, he changes his style of painting, and now he's got the women with the strange heads and the angles and all that kind of African style that permeates Picasso's work, and Picasso starts painting like Picasso. Why is that? It's the inspiration of looking at something, holding something, when you're searching very, very deeply to solve a problem, inspiration comes, and the answer is there. Wow. 
Okay, now I'm inspired to end the radio show, go run out and see if I can't do something, hold something differently to solve a problem I have at the moment. That's incredible. I had not heard that story. I knew that there was a lot of exchange between Picasso and Matisse, but I hadn't re- had not connected with the power of holding that physical scru- structure, sculpture. And I think you're right. When people are inspired and they are focused very closely and they're getting input from a different perspective, that the solutions then do come. In fact, that's the source of creativity at the end of the day, taking something from one area and applying it in a new area. All right, Steve, we're going to take a break. With me today is Steve Newman. Steve is, as you can tell, a teacher, trainer, program director for executive development and a deep advisor on learning and companies. He's the co-founder of the Future of the Learning Forum at Columbia Business School and a host of other stuff, spending much of his career or spending many parts of his career, I should say 15 years at Ericsson. When we come back, I want to go back to this topic of, you know, having leaders that you've seen and getting them ready for the next step and how do we turn people into lifelong learners. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Steve Newman, and we have been talking about the leader's role as preparing for the future. 
I think what has inspired me in listening to Steve's stories is the notion that you put leaders in different experiences and ask them to drill deeply on things they never really have thought about and to hear each other's perspectives and experiences of that experience and use that to say, what are the implications? And then this notion that inspiration comes out of looking at things from very, very different angles. So does a whole lot more. So I've been inspired, Steve. Um, I want to come back to something you had you said about curiosity, and I think you have a great story to tell on this one. So, what is this? Well, <laughs> I think curiosity is is everything. It's much more than killing the cat. Um, I think it's the most important quality of a leader. Um, here's a story. Now, this may be an urban legend. I don't know where I heard it. I suspect it's true. It's a good story anyway. Um, okay. You've got to go back to MIT in the early '80s. They had a speaker's series, and they invited uh, three prominent executives in uh, what they called computing at the time. Um, And I guess each executive is supposed to come along, make a speech, probably write a check as well, and leave. So the Mm -hmm. first one who comes is the CEO of IBM, John Akers, three cars, uh, several assistants, uh, perfectly prepared uh, presentation, one or two questions, all dressed up, talks to everybody, leaves. Okay. The second guy to come along a few weeks later is Steve Jobs. Now, Apple, that was the old Apple, and that was the old Steve Jobs, but Apple at that time was becoming an important company. Steve comes, he takes a taxi cab. He comes along, he's angry, he's fiery, he's passionate, uh, he's on a mission, he doesn't like this, he doesn't like that. He speaks for about an hour or so, he takes a taxi and he goes away. Then, a couple of weeks later, Bill Gates comes. Um, Bill Gates, you know, already Microsoft was doing well, right? Uh, Bill Gates comes, takes the subway, goes to MIT, makes his speech. He's not a great speaker, Bill Gates, or he wasn't at the time. Um, And he said, look, that's what I have to say. I want to know what you have to say. And apparently Bill Gates said, I I just want to get comfortable here. Let's get pizza. Who wants what? I want to sit here. I want to find out what you're working on. What do you think is important? What's important now? What's important tomorrow? What am I missing? And that session went on until 2 o'clock in the morning. And then I asked myself, you know, who would you rather work for? Who would you rather work for back in 1984? Wow. What a great story. You're right. That's incredible. That a CEO, especially of Microsoft at the time, because they were quite a big player, comes and says, all right, so here's what I think. What do you think? And let's get pizza. And what are you working on? And what's important? What have I missed? I love it. Talk about questions to ask. Um, I did talk last night to a group of people. And one of the questions from the audience was, you know, what are the big questions that we should be asking in meetings in order to make sure that we're having the right impact and we're thinking forward? And in my language, that we're becoming more spanning leaders rather than just expert leaders. Strikes me that those are the questions we should ask. What do you have to say? What are you working on? What do you think is important? And what have I missed? And, and what's going on? And, and what's going on can be small things. But if you want people to have their eyes wide open to, to be in touch with things, they can give you small things. And if you do that on a regular basis, 
You know, what did you see on the subway? I mean, what, what did you see in an art exhibition? What are you picking up? How are people talking these ways, uh, these days? How are people advertising these days? Eventually, the group will make sense of that, right? And then they may find some opportunities and they go from there. So, I mean, Steve, you do this in terms of a group, but it strikes me this is what a curious executive does on a regular basis. And not with a group, but they do that with whoever they're sitting at dinner. They do that in a walk through an art gallery. They do that in a new city. They do that when they visiting a different country. It's just part of their DNA to have five minutes here or ten minutes there to sort of make some observations. Yeah, Again, I mean, I think that's what they what they should be doing. Um, okay. And maybe, maybe you call all of this reflection, if you like, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, when it comes to reflection, I, I think there are four ways to look at that. I mean, just to kind of make sure that you're yeah. on track, reflecting enough. Um, maybe it's that, that once a year reflection on top of the mountain at the beach. You know, am I, you know, am I still up for this? Do I have the energy? Do I have something to offer? That sort of thing. People do that naturally. Uh, or, mm-hmm. Automatically, another level of of reflection would be you know maybe every three months. How am I doing? You know, how how am I coming across? Uh, what are people saying about me? You know, um, am I using the right language? Um, are these the right stories? That sort of thing. And you'll get that from a mentor or a coach or a trusted colleague or somebody like that. Maybe, maybe I don't know how often that is one. Maybe that's maybe that's once every three months. Um, another level of reflection would be you know. How, you know, how come things are happening the way they are? You know, what were our assumptions? What's going on here? You know, we bought this company in Silicon Valley. Everybody left. How come? You know, we hired this person. Who thought what about that? What were we thinking at the time? It's, it's that ability to go back and test assumptions, be open and honest about it. That is a very rich source of learning. But, but what, what you're talking about, um, and, and what I'm talking about here in the work that I do is, is a fourth area of reflection. And that is basically to get into the habit, 15 minutes, you know, every two weeks, what is going on? What's fresh? What are we missing by sitting here? What's going on in the outside world? And you encourage people to bring things forward. It doesn't need to be part of a, a serious process. It's not part of the strategy. It doesn't need to be on target for the business, but I think it's very, very helpful. That's interesting. So, Steve, when you look through your experiences in all of life, and in particular working with the senior executives at Ericsson and in other places, do you find that people who do more of this reflection, and in particular the ones with more curiosity, are the ones who excel? Definitely. Definitely. And and I would say especially today. Um, the executives who succeed today, and I, I don't have the studies on this one, that may, may, maybe okay. you do, they, they strike me, they, they are younger, they dress younger, they look younger, they're more fit, um, they're more engaging, they tell stories, they like to be with people. I think they model this type of behavior. I, I think there is a new generation out there that is more, uh, more vulnerable, more open, more willing to ask questions. There's, um, there's a lot that's been said about the generation, and a lot of it not terribly kind. I happen not to agree with some of those assumptions because I think they reflect our own biases and preferences. But okay. if you listen to what a number of experts have said about the generation, is there's this sense of why do I need to learn facts? Because facts are on the Internet. They're free. 
I can go figure it out anytime. I can Google it. I can crowdsource it. And I think that makes them less wanting to hoard facts and information and much more open to experiences. I think one of the, there might be a difference between facts, which, which yep. are on the internet, of course, and developing perspectives and deepening perspectives. I mean, I, I think companies can demand of their leaders you know, deep perspectives about the way people live in the markets that they serve, uh, deep perspectives about women in the workplace. What's changing? How are they looking at things? How are they feeling? Uh, how, how does the culture uh, go, you know, work with their own aspirations. So I'm not sure it's all about facts. I think facts is one thing, but I think we're talking about a a deeper level of humanity and curiosity, and that I do think uh, new executives are bringing to the table, or certainly should be. Yeah, let's hope so. I think we all need it. So, Um, We've talked a little bit about this in terms of lifelong learning. So you've talked about this in the willingness to reflect. And I want to repeat the four areas because they strike me as a pretty powerful to-do list for somebody who's in a leadership role. And one is that once a year, some time frame like that, reflection of am I up for this? I want to continue. Do I have the energy? Do I think I have something to offer? And in my language, what's my value that I'm bringing? And then there's something around once a quarter reflecting on how am I coming across and what's the language I'm using and what's the stories and how are people reacting and is there a better way to do this that's going to get a better reaction or not. And then the third one you talked about is a reflection on what were we thinking. Why did things happen the way they happened? What were our assumptions? Um, uh, why, what, we, what made us decide that choice and so forth. And then this final one is a much more regular one as you're advocating something along the lines of every two weeks where I'm saying what's going on, what's missing. And it's not around the strategy. It's not around the business plan. It's not around the new markets, the new products, the new services. It's just looking out on the horizon, what's happening out there today not anticipating yep. the future, but looking for the signals of today. And it strikes me that that sets up a lifelong learning model. If you do those four consistently, I think you're in pretty good shape for lifelong learning. I think you are, but I think you can also be uh, programmatic about learning. I mean, you know, so many people in business are, are very rational. They have a kind of a rational background. And so you can say to people, and I've done this, okay, here are six ways to learn. You know, take your brown sheet of paper and fill this out. If you don't like one of these six, add your own. And you can do it by categories. You can say, okay, big books. Which ones do you want to read? Everybody will say Sapiens or something like that. Big books. Second one would be, uh, what networks do I want to join or strengthen? Third one might be, what talks do I want to give to what kind of an audience? Fourth one might be, what, what courses do I, want to, do I want to take or what experiences do I want to have? The fifth one might be, how do I capture my reflections in a better way? And the sixth one would be, what are the big questions that I'm trying to find the answers to? Now, it's easy to make that. Uh, people will do it if you ask them. The real value is presenting that, looking at what other people have proposed as learning agendas for themselves and questioning them about it. Find out why they have that up there. You get new ideas, they get support and reinforcement, and it's something that you can follow up on throughout the year. Wow. 
anyone with even without much of a training budget can figure out how to do that one. Big books. That's right. That's right. What networks, what talks, what courses slash experiences, how do I capture reflections, and what are the big questions I'm trying to answer and share those within a group. That's quite stunning. Yeah. Okay. All right, Steve. Um Let's turn for just a minute and talk about this notion of purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an awful lot of words that get used around this one. Some people call purpose. Some people say a sense of meaning. I don't know. It goes in all sorts of directions. Um, what's your sense of this and how do we begin to think about it? I think, I think you know, there are kind of cycles of words in business. I think purpose is a wonderful word. I think we've been using it for a while now, and we've gotten to the point where an awful lot of people have had the opportunity to work through and articulate their purpose. There's nothing wrong with purpose. I mean, we should wake up in the morning with a purpose. I'm not sure that that particular word resonates with people today. Um, I think there is another word uh, that does a little bit more, and for me, that word is meaning. Now, now your meaning, purpose, is there really any difference between it? There doesn't have to be. But I think meaning gets back to how we live our lives, and it's connected with mindfulness, and mindfulness is the kind of heightened sense of reality, you know, what, it, what is going on right now and what is going on with people. Meaning for me is it starts with the self, you know, what is meaningful for me? I am not here to waste my time. I'm not here to have a bad experience, a bad interview with you, a bad lunch or about anything. How do, how do I make my life meaningful? And if you do that, and then with the kind of enthusiasm that goes along with it as a leader, I, th- I think that's catching, right? So meaning, meaning takes place at the high level. You know, what is this company all about? What are we trying to achieve? It also takes place at the individual level. You know, what kind of energy am I emitting? Because, you know, I seek meaning in everything I do. And there are examples in my own case. I, I will not do a session anymore in a training room with no windows, low ceiling, no flowers, no fruit. It's just not worth it. You know, I'm not happy in a place like that. Nothing is going to happen. Um, I, I, I like I like the word meaning. <laughs> I think I think it's meaningful, um, and I think it kind of describes what's going on today um, with regards to people. That um, I find I think that these words have lofty implications. I think they're important for us. But I agree with you that people resonate with one word or with another word, and I'm not yet sure we're talking about very different things. So I like your statement of whatever the word it is, for you it's meaning. Mm-hmm. And I, there's one part of what you said. So yes, we can have some big, meaningful, purposeful statement. I can have my purpose um, statement as such. A lot of people are chasing that one, a lot of good ideas on how to do it. But you said it in a very simplistic day-to-day time. What is meaningful for me? How well am I spending my time? I don't want to waste my time. What am I doing that's meaningful? I thought that was just such a straightforward, simple way. And yes, the company has something meaningful. And yes, the team has something that's meaningful. But what if we all stopped and said, what am I doing that's meaningful for me? Let, wow. let me tell you a little story, Wanda, if I may. <laughs> yes, please. Of course. This is a story about a surgeon at Cornell Wild Medical School who is the world's 
top surgeon in his field. Um, his name is Ashutosh Tawari. I don't think he would mind that I mention his name. And you can imagine how valuable his time is, right? Um, here is how he starts the day once a week. He has researchers from all over the world. He's got about 20 of them that have chosen to come and work with him. Everybody has a beautiful diary or agenda, leather-bound, which he gave them. He asks them to write down what they have learned during the week. And then at the beginning of the meeting, each person has to read out, this is really old-fashioned, right? Read from his or her own handwriting what he or she has learned. There is silence. There is just a couple of comments from everybody else, and we go all around the room. What Dr. Tawari is communicating, right, the way he finds meaning in reflection, in learning, in asking questions, the way he spends his time speaks wonders about the kind of person that he is. Wow. Wow. I'm hard-pressed, Steve, to imagine any senior executive that I have worked with in any client company that would, A, ask people to keep a leather-bound journal and write in it every week what they've read, and B, take the time to have everybody read out from their own handwriting what they have learned in the course of a week, let alone the course of a month. I think that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does beg the question of what if we did that more often? I mean, I'm a big believer that we've lost the art of writing, and and I mean handwriting, because there's something about handwriting that connects the emotion to it, and it connects the memory to it. So I think there's a real powerful piece about writing that by hand. Okay. It's amazing. All right, Steve, um, we have a few more minutes. Um, Any last insights you want to give us, or perspectives, or wisdom, or advice (laughs) on how to stay fresh, curious learners and leaders? I want to tell you one more story, Wanda, if I can. Uh, You you know I live in Paris, right? And uh, last April, we had the fire in Notre Dame. Everybody watched that on television. If you go by there now, it's completely dark. Uh, The streets are closed. You can't go anywhere near it. Um, but hundreds of people are working on the new Notre Dame. And they're doing, you know, the, the same things that anybody else does in a large organization. They're raising money. Uh, they have to take the, the toxins out of the neighborhood. It's a huge job. They're trying to figure out, you know, what sort of materials they can put into the new Notre Dame. They're looking at all the plans. They're, they're accessing all, all the great architects in the world that input on this talent. Um, if you ask them what they're doing, they will say that they were building a cathedral. And, and, and that is exactly what people were doing in the 12th century. It'll be a different cathedral. Uh, most people in Paris do not want a replica of the old Notre Dame. They want something new. Uh, they want something fireproof. They want something, and, and there'll be a big debate in the end, and some people will like it, and some people won't. But they want something new. But even though it's new, it has the same meaning that it had a thousand years ago. And, and I think that everybody who works in companies has got to have that feeling. And that's what I mean by preparing for the future. Wow. Wow. That future, that feeling that I am building something and that that something has meaning. I think, I, I, you know, wow. 
Steve, it's kind of hard to compare with rebuilding Notre Dame and how to summarize what that is and what that's about. I think that's an incredible experience. Um, Let me see if I can't take a moment to summarize some of the highlights for me here. I think it's a bit old. Well, I would have said before today's conversation that we don't use the word learning very much anymore as if we don't have time for it or that's old school going to school. And I think what you have reminded and refreshed to me is that we can't afford not to learn and that learning has to take on a whole new meaning. It's not about going to a classroom about learning content or about learning skills. It is really about opening up our minds and our experiences to alternative perspectives and sharing those perspectives with each other and seeing what's out there in the world. What are the big problems and what are the implications and what do people think about that? And it's in doing that that I began to see signals, ideas of what could be on the horizon, of what we need to consider, of what we need to reflect and think on. And then I think what's interesting about this also is this notion that you do it at a deep level, that you are, you you said to drill deeply, that it's in the drilling deeply when you're um, really inspired that we start to find solutions and that that is done collectively, not just solo. So Steve, the most important thing I can say today is I'm inspired to rethink how we talk about learning um, and the importance of it and the importance of reflection for executives. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, Wanda. Thanks for this opportunity. And thanks for that lovely summary. <laughs> thanks. Well, at any rate, there's more to come on this one, no doubt. So my guest again today is Steve Newman. Um, as you've heard, Steve lives in Paris, but he travels all over as he's in London today. He's a teacher, trainer, program director for executive development. He's been an advisor to a bunch of companies, co-founder of the Future of Learning Forum at Columbia Business School, and a host of other things, including a dance company and a teacher's college in Norway and some years in the Peace Corps in Uganda. And he spent 15 years running executive programs at Ericsson. Um, Steve, again, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Please join well, us next week. It's my pleasure, week. and it's, it's an honor to be interviewed by you, Wanda. Uh, it's always a delight, <laughs> Steve. Thank you very much. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.